Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We want to consult now with Patrick Chovanek. He is the managing director and, and chief strategist for Silvercrest Asset Management, and he can be followed on Twitter at PR Chovanek. Thank you very much for being here, Patrick. Happy New Year to you. Maybe you could just draw the connection for our listeners between what happens with U.S. interest rates and global debt situations, specifically what is happening in China right now. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't draw a direct connection with what's going on in China. I do think that whenever you have interest rates rise in the United States or the prospect of interest rates rising in the United States, you've seen a pullback of dollar liquidity to the United States, and that's undercut a lot of emerging markets. So emerging markets globally are down now. Uh, everything's down now. But, but, but uh, whenever you've seen that, you've seen that undercut equity markets, uh, particularly in emerging markets. With China... You know, China's got its own complex issues, and I don't think the U.S. interest rate's necessarily driving it. Certainly, it's not necessarily U.S. interest rates. Uh, there has been, though, a slowdown, which is perhaps part of the reason why interest rates globally haven't risen much more. And we're right. seeing that certainly in the manufacturing data that we got overnight. What do you think of that data and, frankly, the incredible uh, response to it with a negative reaction in equity markets and, and, and a bid for bonds? So it really reminds me of the beginning of 2016, when obviously markets were much stronger to begin 2016. But... Uh, the first day of 2016, we saw a negative PMI number, uh, manufacturing number from China. It kicked off a, a, a correction uh, in global markets, in the U.S. markets. Uh, on the assumption, the widespread assumption, that a slowing China necessarily is bad news for the global economy. I don't agree with that assumption. Really? That's yeah. contrarian. Well, here's the thing. You know, what matters to the rest of the world is not uh, Chinese supply. Chinese demand. And normally in an economy, these two things go together. The more you supply, the more you can demand. But for a long time, there's been this need for a correction where China consumes more relative to what it's, it's producing. So a slowdown in Chinese output does not necessarily translate into a slowdown in Chinese demand. In fact, it could actually translate into a China that begins to run trade deficits and other things. So a slowdown in China's overinvestment boom, which has driven a lot of its growth, does not necessarily translate into a slowdown for the rest of the world economy. But hasn't China extended credit in the form of loans to a variety of countries around the world, financed infrastructure projects in Latin America as well as in Africa? Are the Chinese likely to continue to lend money if indeed they have these issues that are domestic-oriented? So, again, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for the global economy is an open question. I mean, obviously, everybody likes free money. But building out capacity has tended to boost um, input prices and suppress output prices. And so this is, you know, this is part of the imbalance in the global economy that, that has, I think, undercut a lot of the growth potential in the world economy throughout this recovery. 
I'm I'm struggling though with this idea that if China lowers its manufacturing output, it's going to offset that with increases in other areas that will be sufficient to keep that economy going to create the kind of extra demand from the rest of the world that you're talking about. In other words, does it indicate that the economy is just slowing so much that this is not going to be a powerhouse for the global economy, which is how people are taking it in markets? So China has produced more than it's consumed for years, which is actually part of the problem. It can afford to consume more than it produces. It can afford to actually prop up consumption in the face of of the kind of slowdown that would normally undercut consumption in most economies of the world. And that, and there'll be a lot of political pressure for them to do that. And that's why we've actually started to see actually uh, China's trade surplus disappear. Um, So not with the United States, not the bilateral one. Yeah, I was about to say, I remember seeing a lot of uh, deepening trade deficit in the US. But it's multilateral trade deficit. you know, it depends on how much you believe the numbers, but there are indications that they actually may be moving into deficit, which is actually a positive thing for the global economy because it means that China's finally demanding commensurate with what it produces. Do you believe that investors are too gloomy, too pessimistic about 2019, specifically when it comes to U.S. stocks? So I take the concerns very seriously, but I just spent... The last, you know, I write a quarterly letter, and, and it's not out yet, but I, but I looked at nine leading indicators for the, global, for, for the U.S. economy, things that usually flash a recession warning before it happens. Um, six of them were no. Three of them were maybe early signs. Um, if the yield curve inverted, one of them would move from no to yes. I'm talking about the 10-year the versus two-year. Yeah. Um, but I'm not seeing convincing evidence that we are on the cusp of a recession as the market seems to think. What I am seeing is uh, the fact that equity prices are, the, the, the 12-month trailing P ratio for the S&P 500 is now down from 21.5%, 21.5 times a year ago to 16 times. Um, what I'm also seeing is a blowout in the equity risk premium which is the uh, you know, additional amount based on cash flow is the additional amount that you earn potentially earn on equities over the long haul um, versus uh, investing in treasuries. That has blown out to 5.7%. Normally, the, the average for the past 50 years or so is 4.2%. That typically, when you see a wide equity risk premium, um, it generally means that over the next five years, equities will outperform. So if I looked back over the last, you know, going back to 1960, when the equity risk premium was above 5%, the average annual return for five years afterwards was 11.2%. If it was below 3.4%, the average return was 3.2%. And what the reason why is because what, what's happening is that the market is scared of the next recession, but it's pricing in that risk adversity. And that won't tell you, that, that number that I just said won't tell you where stocks will be a year from now. But if you're more interested in where stocks will be five years from now, it's a very interesting number. Thank you very much for being with us. A pleasure. Patrick Chovanek, he is uh, an expert when it comes to all things uh, China and trade-related. He is the Managing Director and Chief Strategist for Silvercrest Asset Management.
Shares of Tesla lower by about 7.5% now. The company is cutting prices to partially make up for the federal tax credit that has been cut in half in the United States for those vehicles. Here to tell us about the decline and the company's future prospects is Kevin Tynan, our senior autos analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Kevin, great to have you with us. Happy New Year. Is the decline in the price of Tesla stock connected to the discount that Tesla is offering? They're willing to knock $2,000 off the price of an automobile because those tax credits are going away? Yeah, I, I, my feeling is that's more the issue than, say, the uh, production and delivery slight miss for the quarter. Um, you know, keep in mind, this is a company that, that needs to um, make margin, Right, and they need to do that while getting down to that thirty-five thousand dollar vehicle, which opens up their addressable market considerably. So, by taking two thousand dollars off the sticker price, you're sort of moving away from that that concept that Tesla is going to do twenty-five percent gross margins, sell a vehicle at thirty-five thousand dollars, and have this sort of infinite demand profile in the U.S. I'm just wondering at what point all of the bears will get flushed out and it will leave sort of the hard, hard skinned uh, Tesla believers left. I mean, my point being basically, at what point can we say this is real trading and this is sort of not just sort of the believers versus the haters? Right. I think we're a long ways away from that. Um, you know, and, and automobile manufacturing is an industry that there is no finish line, right? General Motors was bankrupt 98 years later. Uh, two years removed from 9 million units globally. So, you know, that's why looking at these quarterly numbers, you say, as an analyst, you want Tesla to be boring, right? Just produce, sell, grow, make margins, make profits, uh, introduce new vehicles. So if you look at it, Lisa, there's one factory at this point, right? Talking about breaking ground on a China factory. This is a company in the auto space, you need scale, right? They're a long way away from scale. But that's that's sort of my point is that it's still a belief story. It isn't sort of an on the ground number story. It's not like we're debating whether or not they're going to meet this target or that target. We're debating its viability. Right. And not only that, you know, when when you look at it compared to other automakers and, and I hear this constantly that Tesla has no competition and that's 100 percent correct because we're still discussing whether it's viable or not. So if you look at the global automotive space of 100 million units, how big is the battery electric vehicle portion of it? Is it 2 million? Well, most automakers are going to fight over the other 98 and leave that to, to Tesla and whoever else wants to invest in it. I find it very interesting. Toyota has never said electrification is the way to go. You know, this is not a, 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 a small company or a not intelligent company that's done a lot of things in the space. So, now, if that segment is 20 million units, 50 million units, now everybody rushes in. But we're at the point right now where other automakers are saying, do I want to fight over those, that 1%, that 2%, maybe it's even 5%. Is it worth the investment in that space? All right. Three quick questions. How's the build quality of, and the reviews of all of the Tesla vehicles? Well, Pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You don't get any bad marks for, for the cars. No, right? I, and and obviously everybody who has them loves them. Okay, um, so, they don't advertise. Well, they, I mean, they're advertising. <laughs> they don't comes, pay for advertising. That's yeah. what I mean. Okay, so that's number two. Number three, 
Aren't governments around the world mandating the move from fossil fuel, from the internal combustion engine, to some form of either hybrid or electric vehicles? Sure. Okay, so that's a trifecta. Right, except if plug-in hybrid winds up being the most practical option there to say we're still going to have an internal combustion component. Look, battery, pure battery electric might not work for everybody, right? In terms of recharging time, the availability of, of the uh, charging stations. So I, again, I think we're still a long ways away from this being the majority of the new vehicle market globally. And then there's, of course, the question of which companies will dominate that, given the fact that the majors in the U.S., including GM, uh, have sort of really laid their stake in this ground also. So a lot of questions, Kevin Tynan, you're going to be answering them for us years to come. uh, And we are grateful for that. Kevin Tynan is Senior Autos Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Let's go back to late last month when President Trump was tweeting about positive uh, rumblings between uh, China and the U.S., that possibly there'd be some uh, easing of the trade tensions. What would some sort of trade agreement between the U.S. and China actually look like if there were to be something like that within the next few months? Joining us now, Ann Stevenson-Yang, co-founder and research director at J Capital Research, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Thank you so much for being here. And so what would some sort of truce or agreement look like at this point, given the vast span of, of topics and uh, areas that, that, that the two nations disagree on? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that what has to be focused on is the tech stuff. ZTE, Huawei, um, in IPR agreements, uh, export controls, and not the low-tech uh, exports and the trade gap. And what Trump tends to be personally focused on is the trade gap, which is actually widening um, and will continue around the same in the, in the current year because the Chinese will depreciate the currency because they'll be forced to. Um, so I don't think that that's where there should be a focus. Do you think that we're going to cross that sort of crucial line seven. of seven yeah exactly seven I do, I versus do. dollar you do think? because you know look at the chinese economy they're just it's just tumbling um people are going to be you're, you're going to see a big pickup in in uh in capital flight and uh the china's only defense will be to depreciate the currency now you have over 25 years of expertise uh in china uh you uh, were headed heading the u.s information technology office uh in the mid-1990s and also the China operations of the U.S.-China Business Council. You also wrote about China's emergence and the back and forth of expansion and retreat that China historically has expressed. I'm wondering if you could expand on that and explain why that's relevant for our understanding of China. Well, because I think that when China embarked on its current opening phase in 1979, uh, mainly in the 1990s, when China really started to accelerate its uh, its economic opening to the West, a lot of international corporations and countries uh, believed that China was in the process of liberalizing. 
and that the liberalization was open-ended and that China ultimately would become sort of a Jeffersonian democracy and, and a capitalist country. That is not at all the case. China goes through these, uh, these cycles of opening and closing again. It opens when the country needs cash. And that's what happened through the 1990s and the 20, 2000s to date. Um, and now the cost is getting higher than the benefit. And so you'll see China closing. All right. I want to go to something that Patrick Shavanik said earlier in this show. Patrick Shavanik uh, is chief strategist of Silvercrest Asset Management and has focused a lot on China. And he said that a slowdown in China would not necessarily be a bad thing for the rest of the world, especially if it's a slowdown in manufacturing, which is what we're seeing, since perhaps that will mean that they will actually import more and reduce some of the imbalance that has sort of been inherent in its growth. Do you agree? You know, Pat has been talking about that for a while and how, how running through the, uh, the, the foreign reserves would be a good thing for China. You know, theoretically, that is a good thing. It's just not really politically in the cards. So will China start to import more because it manufactures less? No. Uh, what China will do is go through a dramatic uh, depreciation of the currency and then find that its own manufacturing is more, com is more competitive and then manufacture more. But if they do do this competitive devaluation, that will ignite a, a, a complete storm from Washington, D.C., will it not, and aggravate the trade tensions to such a degree that there could be potentially uh, more ramifications on that side? It may. I don't think that they're going to do it in response to the U.S. In fact, I think they've been holding up the currency to the extent they can uh, in order to, uh, to, to continue the trade negotiations with the U.S. The problem is that, um, you know, China, China claims a little over $3 trillion in foreign reserves. The, the, the reality is that they have liquid reserves of about $1.1, trillion. Um, and so they don't have that much room to operate. So if they drop by $100 billion, you'll see them depreciate very fast. What can you tell us about the importance of the personal relationship that the president says he has with Xi Jinping, president of China? Nonsense. Uh, really nonsense. Um, I, I do think that Xi Jinping a little bit fell for it, but Xi Jinping also greatly supported the election of Donald Trump and I think now is regretting it a lot. Is there anything that President Trump has actually gotten for the U.S. out of these negotiations with China? You know, that's a good question. I do think that it was high time that the United States start, start to exert pressure on China for its intellectual property theft and for the export controls violations and those things. You know, Obama imposed or threatened to impose sanctions two years before Trump came into office but never actually actualize the sanctions, there's been too long a period when the United States has been afraid of losing business and so has been afraid to put pressure on China. And it turns out actually to be effective. The problem is, what's the goal? You need to define the goal and then exert pressure. What do investors get wrong when they think about China? Mostly the consumer. The investors have this idea that China is a place where the consumer is, uh, is growing and spending more, that you have companies like Alibaba and JD and everybody's spending money online. The consumer is just a rebranding of what they used to call the masses. Um, and the, you know they're going to buy this year what you tell them to buy this year and what you fund them to buy, and then they're going to stop buying it. So going forward, what do you think is going to be the story heading into 2020? 
trade agreement still on the table? Well, I think that, that Donald Trump is going to back down as he always backs down, and there will be no 25% uh, new tariffs uh, even after the grace period. I think the big story of 2019, though, is going to be the sort of crash of the Chinese economy. If indeed that takes place, will there be a political reaction to distract or dissuade domestic forces in China from focusing on that decline? I would have thought so. It's a very opaque system. I would have thought that that would have started uh, quite some time ago, and I've been surprised at the accommodating uh, position that Xi Jinping has taken. You'd think that that running out of cards, that that's, that would be what they would do, encircle Taiwan, uh, go to the Spratleys, you know, this sort of thing. Well, just to pick up quickly on that on the Taiwan issue, uh, because in a speech uh, just recently, Xi Jinping speaks about uh, that this is a reunification that's an irresistible trend. Well, it is something that clearly he has focused his, uh, he, he wants to be his legacy. The question is, if you take Taiwan, what do you do with it? Nobody wants to fight a ground war in Taiwan for 20 years. Uh, but there, there's also a question as to whether the U.S. would defend and whether the U.S. can defend if the Chinese Navy were to, for example, encircle. Thank you very much for being with us. Anne Stevenson-Yang is co-founder and research director of J Capital Research, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Gold is rallying and is actually at the highest level since June of last year. Kind of interesting at a time uh, when a lot of people had written gold off as perhaps not acting as a store of value in the way it once did. Joining us now, Frank Holmes, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Investors, joining us from San Antonio. Frank, thank you so much for being with us. So let's start with the rally that we've seen in gold. Does this sort of edify gold's long-held uh, sort of role as a, a capital president? Preservation tool. Absolutely. And we go back since the year 2000, bullion has outperformed the S&P two to one. Uh, and uh, we can see now for the last year, it slowly outperformed the S&P 500. And for the last quarter of the year, as the market unraveled, uh, bullion had a spectacular run along with the gold stocks. Well, Frank Holmes, if you have to choose between gold stocks or actual physical gold, which would you hold? It's a great question, Pam, and I've always advocated that 10% golden rule and 5% being into gold uh, coins or GLD and the other 5% into gold stocks uh, because in a run in gold, gold stocks can give you two to three times, 300% uh, more performance. So I guess that what I'm trying to understand right now is, you know, are we going to see the gold rally continue? Is this bearish kind of outlook going to continue? Or is gold going to potentially lose out throughout the rest of this year as people realize that it, we aren't actually headed toward Armageddon? U.S. profitability at companies is still pretty good. And, you know, perhaps we got a little over our skis. No, I think it's the $57 trillion and over $150 trillion of global debt. Uh, that's our big issue for people uh, of, of looking at it on a global basis. And I also think that what we're witnessing is peak gold. Uh, we had peak oil in 2005 until 
the flackers came along and, and were disruptive to the supply of oil. But there's been no technological breakthrough of even close to that equivalent in the mining sector, in particular, finding gold, developing it, producing, etc. So we have this ongoing global demand for gold, both the love trade and the fear trade, and you have supply has peaked, and we're getting less and less from the mines. They are lower grade, they are higher cost, they're shutting them down. Uh, and the only way countries like South Africa can be profitable is by their currency devaluing uh, to be able to get a margin. Well, I'm glad you mentioned currencies devaluing, and I'm wondering if the U.S. dollar loses strength, doesn't that mean that the price of gold, at least on a nominal basis, will increase? And if the dollar loses value, that will make gold even more attractive. In the blink of an eye, Tim, in the blink of an eye, uh, gold will just snap uh, on that on that trade. Uh, and I think that just looking by from here to June, that rates will peak. And uh, any sign of that, you'll see uh, gold all of a sudden start to resuscitate itself. Uh, and also QE, you know, the unwinding of the QE in the U.S. Uh, was a big uh, fund flows went into bonds and equities. And since the QE's basically been pushed back and, and there's a retraction here, we're seeing the stock market unwind and we're seeing gold all of a sudden rally. The peak in gold was basically when QE is one started, uh, when gold hit 1900. Um, the last time we had a financial crisis, 2008, gold was $700. Uh, and then by 2011, it had skyrocketed to 1900 uh, before it fell back to about 1000 so I think that uh, gold is in a very strong and a relative basis globally. Uh, we still have issues with the EU, uh, Brexit, uh, and we have this trade war. And uh, we continue to see more central banks buying gold. Yeah. Uh, many of the Eastern European economies like uh, Hungary and Poland uh, have shown up for the first time buying uh, uh, tons of gold. Yeah. Well, one thing I have to think about, Frank, because you manage a fund that, that focuses on precious metals, but you also manage a fund uh, that has to do with the airline industry and manufacturing. And just real quick here, do you expect the sort of opposite to be true, that manufacturing companies and airline companies are going to struggle because ultimately the bid for gold comes from a pretty bearish place in the economy? Well, you know, it's a, it's it's something that's very contrarian. I would share with you that from 2001, uh, gold went from $250 to uh, 700 uh, to 2008. So we had a strong global economy, and gold did participate quite well in that rally. So I, I don't think you just mark it off as being, you know, bare bull. That's the fear trade. What's really important is that 60% of gold demand is love. And love comes from Chindia, which is 40% of the world's population, affectionately known as China and India. And it's highly correlated to the rising GDP per capita in those two countries. Uh, all of a sudden, you get greater increases in gold, gift-giving. Well done. Thanks very much, uh, Frank Holmes. Wishing you Happy New Year. Gold right now is higher by about a half a percent, up about $6, $7 an ounce at $1,288 for an ounce of gold. Many thanks to Frank Holmes, Chief Executive and Chief Investment Officer for U.S. Global Investors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.